If all these stories have you wanting to go on your own adventure and you don't want to spend a ton of money and you don't want to take a ton of time away from work and family, I highly encourage you to check out Lost Travel Company. They do trips all over the country, everything from biking to rafting to kayaking, hiking, etc. And on each trip, there's an official start line and an official finish line, but getting between locations is totally up to you. However you want to do it, however you want to carry your gear, it's a total free-for-all in between and, and, and it is a group trip but they're very small groups uh, so you get to know people but you can also easily practice social distancing so a lot of the trips are still happening and like I said uh, they're very affordable very easy to get out and go do because they have figured out a lot of the logistics for you but it still leaves so much room for adventure to happen and with each trip they give back five percent of the total trip as a donation to the area where the trip is happening so if you'd like to find out more, go to lost.travel and use the code ADVENTUREsports for 10% off any of the trips listed. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, where we hear stories of adventure from every corner of the planet. We interview all sorts of folks who are using their sport to explore the world around them and give you the inspiration you need to get out there and have some fun. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. You've got Kurt again today. Mason is still out helping out with that coast-to-coast bike ride. And so it is me. This is not a rerun. And I'm excited to have Brian Lazar with us. Now, Brian Lazar is the Deputy Director of the Colorado Avalanche Information Center, which is an, a, an amazing resource for... Uh, being able to get into the backcountry safely. I'm going to say it that way. I'm going to read his bio so you know who he is and what he's done. He's, he's got extensive background in avalanche safety. But here we go. Brian has been working in the field of snow and avalanches for the last couple of decades. He began backcountry skiing in Colorado as a college student and later as a mountain guide and as an avalanche educator curriculum developer, and as a former executive director with the American Institute for Avalanche Research and Education, and a member of the American Avalanche Association Education Committee. After a decade or so of guiding and teaching in a variety of snow climates on both sides of the equator, Brian returned to graduate school where he earned a MS in engineering studying snow and ice mechanics in Alaska's Sagwatch and conducting research at the Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research. He worked for many years as a consultant in the ski industry, investigating snowpack runoff and potential changes to seasonal snowpacks as a result of climate change. Brian has been doing the Deputy Director of the CAIC since 2010. In the summers, you can find Brian complaining about the heat, planning his next trip to the snow, and trying to keep up with his wife, Michelle, on mountain bikes. Cool. (laughs) Brian, welcome (laughs) to the program. Man, that was a mouthful. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. <laughs> and I'm getting to the point now. I gotta now. I'm trying to keep up with my kids as well. So. Oh no, dude. Yeah, yeah. Just getting dropped all over the place. Well, my uh, my sons have been mountain biking and for years now. And uh, people that have been on the show know this about me. So I'm going to go ahead and say it. They started racing with Nika. So I used to have to wait for them, and I was teaching them, and I felt all studly. You know, I'm the man. 
And now my youngest son is a junior in high school, and he would be racing junior varsity this year if if the Nike races were happening, but because of COVID, they're not. But that point being, three sons, they've all been racing for years and years and years, and trying to keep up with them is just brutal. I feel my age, and it's a real head game. So I don't envy your position, but at the same time, I really do, because it's so much fun to ride with your kids, right? <laughs> it it is. It's great. So, uh, the toey strap will, uh, which we used to use for our little ones, uh, will soon <laughs> soon be on my bike. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to do that. I tell you, it gets tough. One thing I would encourage people to do when your kids get to be better than you, and it's going to happen, and you should celebrate it. Start using something like Strava so that you can see what your actual performance is. Don't grade your performance based on what your kids are doing because they're going to make you feel like you're getting really, really old. (laughs) (laughs) But the truth is, you know, I keep getting faster and stronger, but they're just getting faster and stronger way faster than I am. It's a good thing. You wouldn't want it any other way. No, no. No, absolutely not. So, Brian, how, how fun it must be to have a career based around things you love. And man, skiing has been a big deal for you. Tell us about that. Um, yeah, I mean, I was, you know, drawn to the mountains from the time I was, you know, a little kid. Um, and, you know, I, I grew up skiing um, and doing outside activities, but uh, was really kind of drawn to the backcountry, you know, when I uh, came out to Colorado and college. So around 18, I kind of figured out, um, you know, you could kind of chart your own course, chart your own track and have the freedom of the hill, so to speak, that mm. the backcountry offered. So that was always really attractive to me. Um, you know, this is early, so a different era back then. So there weren't as many people in the backcountry and we were traveling around on either, you know, old, oh, not great, you know, Raymer type bindings, or, you know, a lot of us were on three pin cable leather boot, you know, telemark setups. Right. But um, what drew me to the backcountry then is still what, you know, draws me out there today. Well, what is the magic that draws you out there today? I mean, it's still the ability to kind of get out into some wild and more obscure places. And, um, you know, what's really nice about traveling around the backcountry in the winter is you can make your own trail. You can go wherever you want. Um, you know, you're not obligated to follow someone's, you know, snowmobile line or skin track. Uh, you get to decide where you go and how you get there. Um, mm-hmm. There's something really uh you know, liberating about that. Oh man. I, I love it. it. One of my favorite things is just how quiet it can be. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, just um, you know, so it's not as quiet as it used to be, but you know, you may have to go more obscure or go farther or go at different times to kind of find, uh, the solitude, but it's, it's still there. So the backcountry has gotten a lot busier, which makes it a little bit more risky. I would say, because you have to worry about the people above you, not just what you're doing. But that said, how much busier is it? Do you have any feel for that? I mean, we have a feel for it. That's a good way of putting it. We have a feel for it. We've got anecdotal observations. We don't have as much in the way of hard data as we would like. Um, You know, the simple answer is, you know, we don't really know how many people are in the backcountry. There are some places that have data on, you know, a number of people at trailheads, for example, but those are pretty few and far between. You can look at other kind of surrogate metrics like um, 
increase in sales and backcountry equipment, uh, you know, beacons and shovels and probes and backcountry ski equipment. Um, you can look at things like snowmobile registrations, um, you know, to all try and ascertain, you know, how many people are in the backcountry. Um, but you wouldn't talk to anyone out there who has not observed more people in the backcountry than there used to be. And that's pretty much everywhere. You know, so the shorter answer is there's more people in the backcountry. There's a lot more than there used to be. We don't have enough information to quantify that with a lot of confidence, mm, okay. but we're working on it. But, you know, essentially we look at a lot of surrogate metrics and all of those metrics point in the same direction. There's increasing use in the backcountry and uh, that, that won't surprise anyone who's been out there lately. When the ski area shut down because of COVID-19 last spring, then a lot of people decided to try to ski out of bounds and perhaps for the first time it got pretty crowded uh bet you have some stories about that how was that well um you know it's a little bit nerve-wracking for us you know because our primary concern and you know as a public safety organization is we really worry about um you know people getting caught or killed or injured in avalanches and so you know we saw a lot more people out there um than we probably ever have. And this was all over the state and it wasn't unique to Colorado. I mean, this was mm. happening everywhere. You know, people had a lot of uh, pent up energy. The ski resorts had closed. Um, it was hard to gather inside, you know, the backcountry offered a way to go outside and socially distance and recreate, but it did draw a lot of people into the backcountry who had never been there before. And, um, you know, so for, uh, from our perspective, uh, we are concerned that, you know, there's people out there who aren't aware of the risks of traveling in the backcountry. So it's not for us to judge or tell people, you know, what risks they should take or what they shouldn't, but uh, we want them to have the information uh, so that they can at least make informed decisions and know what skills they need to kind of safely travel in backcountry winter environment. I think in Colorado, there's general awareness. And the reason is because the, the local news likes to report it when someone dies in an avalanche, right? It happens. Yeah. Um, I, I worry more about people that are from out of state that may have not seen that news. And when they come to Colorado, they see beautiful, pristine, untouched powder on a mountainside. And they're like, let's just hike up there and hit that. It looks so cool. Not knowing that, you know, that's an avalanche path. Yeah. I mean, and I can, I can relate to that mindset. You know, it's not that much different than I was at, you know, 18 years old when I came out and, you know, saw these untouched slopes for the first time. Um, and, you know, fortunately lived through the learning curve of realizing that, you know, avalanches are a very real natural hazard. And in some ways that hazard and risk is no more, is no more pronounced than, you know, in a continental snow climate like Colorado. So, you know, we both have a combination of, a a snowpack that's generally conducive to producing avalanches. And plus we've got, you know, a lot of easily accessible mountains in close proximity to large population centers. Mm. Um, and so, you know, that combination just increases your exposure. You just have more people being exposed to avalanche terrain in the backcountry in a snowpack and a snow climate that is, you know, uh, quite capable of producing avalanches. And so, you know, that combination um, is somewhat worrisome, but, you know, despite like the trends we talked about in, you know, increasing and some might even say exploding use of the backcountry, we aren't seeing uh, fatal avalanche accidents, for example, um, on that same trajectory. So some, you know, some efforts at public safety are working, you know, so it's a, a combination of things like 
uh, better and more nuanced, sorry, better and more targeted uh, avalanche education that more closely aligns with uh, backcountry avalanche forecasting. I think forecasting has become um, easier to access and communicate to a public audience. And so, you know, in some ways there's encouraging silver linings in this exploding use in the backcountry is that we're not seeing an explosion in fatal avalanche accidents. So, um, so that, that's some good news in there. Yeah. You know, there's a rather disturbing statistic that gets bounced around. I'm sure you know more about it than I do, but it's that most people that die in avalanches have had avalanche training but I like to say yes, but that's because they're out there doing it. <laughs> you know, if you're out there in the backcountry, you are taking those inherent risks, and hopefully you have had the training. Um, but what do you have to say about that? Yeah, I, you know, I, I'd have to defer and get back to you because I'm not. It's it's hard to say that with a lot of confidence. So. Yeah. Um, there are certainly people that get caught in, in avalanches, caught and killed in avalanches that do have uh, avalanche training, um, but there's quite a bit that don't. And so to say that most people, I just don't know that we can say with a high degree of confidence that most people that are caught and kill, uh, you know, caught in avalanches in the backcountry have had avalanche training. Um, I, I think, you know, the presumption is, you know, that avalanche training might lead to more risky behavior. Um, you know, and there's certainly, I bet that happens with, with some folks, you know, you get a little bit of knowledge and, you know, that it could lead to a dangerous period where you get a little bit of knowledge about avalanches and avalanche activity and, you know, terrain travel and try to put that knowledge kind of to the test, so to speak, and then travel in the backcountry. And those early outings can be dangerous if you don't, ha you're not traveling with, you know, more experienced people that could provide some mentorship and guidance, you know, in other words, taking an avalanche course, uh, you know, provide some base skill sets, but um, that's not where safe travel ends, right? It does right. require practice and planning, and it always helps to have, you know, reliable mentors to kind of show you the ropes. You know, I really like to, I like it that you were able to say, no, I'm not sure that that statistic is true. Um, I've heard that, you know, bantered around a bit, it doesn't make it correct. And I think that avalanche training is an absolute must if you want to get into the backcountry, just so you can enjoy yourself safely. I would agree with that. I mean, I think education is one of the one of the key pillars of safe backcountry travel. I mean, in the reality, it is you know to, to say that with a high degree of confidence, you would need you know really good data, right? And um, we just don't know uh, whether or not we don't have complete data sets. You know, so yeah. it, it varies by location. It's varied over the years. It, you know, various agencies report different details, but we don't know, for example, if every avalanche victim has had avalanche training or not. Um, sometimes we know that and sometimes we don't. And so, you know, you can say some things, which I'd have to kind of dig into our database in the Colorado Avalanche Information Center kind of um, maintains the national accident database. And so you can find that at colorado.gov slash avalanche and look at some of that stuff. But there are some cases where we just don't know the level of avalanche uh, education that people may have had. But I will uh, concur with your point that, you know, avalanche education is a key pillar to traveling in the backcountry. You know, often when we emphasize like what you need to get going in this stuff is, you know, you need proper avalanche gear. So at minimum, an avalanche transceiver, shovel, probe um you need to know how to get your local avalanche forecast and how to interpret that forecast so you can make you know plans appropriate for the today's conditions yep 
Um, and then you ultimately need to get the training and that that's where the avalanche education part comes in. So, you know, we'll, we'll refer to those as kind of, you know, get the gear, get the forecast and get the training. Um, but you know, the, your education doesn't stop after, you know, your three day avalanche course, you know, like a level one avalanche course, for example, is typically done over about a three day period. And that's a great introduction to, you know, avalanche safety, but of course, you know, three days doesn't mean you're done. Sure. I think it takes a lifetime of experience sometimes to really know, one thing that I can point out, and maybe you can help with this, there's a lot of fun to be had in terrain which is not avalanche terrain. And you don't yes. have to risk it. You know, you have yeah, to be able absolutely. to identify it, it. I mean, that's a really key point. You know, so the, your best skill in traveling in the backcountry is being able to identify what's avalanche terrain and what's not. And I've got many friends who maybe used to be, you know, have a higher risk tolerance and have now aged and don't um or who never had it and they just wanted to go ski in or recreate in the backcountry whether you know on their snowmobile or their new snow bike or you know skis and they are not interested in traveling in avalanche terrain at all um and you can have a ton of fun uh, traveling mm-hmm. on low angle slopes without overhead hazard but in order to know you're really doing that not traveling in avalanche terrain it requires some skills and terrain identification that's the kind of the kind of skill set you get introduced to in an avalanche course, but to get really good at it requires application practice and some mentorship. Oh, absolutely. You know, I'm anecdotally, it's been a several years ago now, Brian, but you probably remember this incident. There were some people that were skiing around Loveland Pass, which is a popular place to, you know, get some turns. And it's real easy because you can have cars as your lift access and it sets up a dangerous situation because, the slopes above where people generally ski can load up and are an avalanche risk. So there were some people that were skiing lower down and they were not in avalanche terrain themselves, but there was avalanche terrain above them and someone above them triggered a slide and several people died. Um, That's the kind of thing you wouldn't think about necessarily unless you've had the training to realize it's not just where I am. It's what's above me that I may not even be able to see. Yeah, no, it's a really good point. You know, so you have to really be aware of uh, overhead hazard. And that can, you know, mean both uh, naturally occurring avalanches. It could be stuff as simple as rockfall. But as the backcountry becomes more crowded out there, uh, we have to worry about what other people are doing um, above us. And so you need to really be cognizant. You know, I think one of the uh, a good ethic in the backcountry is, you know, do not expose um, people uh, to avalanche hazard or any hazard really without their knowledge and consent. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it's really, if you're down below, you may not know uh, who's traveling above you or what they're doing with the terrain, but um, you know, for the people that are traveling above, it's you know really incumbent on, on them to not expose uh, elements at risk, which could be roadways or it could be people uh, below them, um, you know, without, uh, you know, people's knowledge and consent. You know, everyone has seen the the scenario where the five-year-old kid runs up to a, a steep hill or a cliff and picks up a rock to throw it down. And dad runs up and says, wait, you don't know who's down there. You might hit somebody. Yeah, exactly. It's the same thing. <laughs> it's the same thing. We just have to be aware. We just have to be aware. Well, you know, Sometimes when we start talking about avalanche safety, I think it gets to be a scary conversation and people are like, well, why would you even try? So let's rewind a little bit. Um, what's so glorious about 
the backcountry that makes it worthwhile to get back there? I mean, what do you love about skiing in the backcountry? We touched on it a little bit, but maybe you have a story about an outing that was just magical for you. Oh, man, I've been doing this for <laughs> 25 years now. I have tons of them. I mean, it's great. I mean, ultimately, you know, at the end of the day, as I get older, it used to be, you know, when I was younger about kind of, oh, I don't know, shredding some new line or skiing something really steep and scary or ski mountaineering or, you know, getting that uncut line of powder. And as I've gotten older, it's just really all about skiing good snow with good people. Yeah. Um, that's still what draws me into the backcountry. So, you know, who I go with and what I do is more about having a good time with good people and coming home safely. Um, and that, I can't say that's where I was 20 years ago. Yep. Yep. I have to ask, do you have any recommendations for the kind of bindings to use? God, there's so many good options now, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's really amazing. You know, we, when I first started doing this stuff, you know, backcountry skiing, it was, we were on, you know, three pin cable bindings, for example, uh, and leather telemark boots, because that was the lightest, most efficient, you know, way to get around in the backcountry um, and really required some downhill proficiency. Um, you know, these were skinny, long skis and floppy boots and, um, that kept a lot of people out of the backcountry. The gear has come a light years, you know, from where that was, you know, 20, 25 years ago. And which is great. It's opened up the backcountry to a lot of people, you know, you've got fat skis and light boots and tech bindings. And so, you know, most competent skiers now can travel around in the backcountry and ski, um, you know, which has its pros and cons, but, you know, in terms of gear now, there's like all these tech bindings have become so light that, you know, most people abandoned telemark skiing in the backcountry because the telemark gear is now generally heavier than the alpine touring gear um and the alpine touring gear has the added safety benefit of being able to release you know in the event of an avalanche and if you do get caught in in an avalanche you you want your skis to come off um so you stay more buoyant and you know moving flow so i mean it used to be you had a handful of options in terms of tech binding and boots but like everyone's gotten into the game even the big mainstream kind of ski manufacturers that you might associate with traditional Alpine, you know, downhill stuff are moving into uh, backcountry equipment because there's just more and more people doing it. There's a bigger market there than ever. So it's drawn everyone into the game. So there's a, a ton to choose from. So, you know, what gear you like now, you know, often comes down to personal preference. So here's a question. I just kind of go generic on it. Um, there's, always a, a battle between how light the bindings are versus how well they perform. And I think that there's a happy medium, but I think in general, probably most of the bindings out there perform well enough. You don't have to worry about it too much, but on that light versus heavy and performance, you know, spectrum, where do you fall? I generally fall towards the light end, but I like a, you know, so, but I'm not on like, um, like ski race bindings, for example, I'm not on these ultra light bindings. My skis, uh, you know, get a fair bit of mileage on them a lot for work. And so I like things like, you know, multiple uh, levels of heel lift that I can choose from, right. Um, easy ins and outs, that kind of thing. So I generally go for, you know, fairly, I'm not in the beefiest bindings by any stretch, but I'm not on the race bindings. I'm kind of somewhere towards that lighter end. But I really do enjoy, um, 
you know, going downhill after you've done a bunch of work. So I will trend towards a slightly, you know, fatter, heavier ski. I'm not out there trying to race. I'm not on, you know, ski mo gear. Right. I think, you know, when an Alpine skier first looks at Alpine touring gear and they see some of these bindings look so minimal, it's like, is that can even hold me on the skis? You know? Yeah. I mean, you know, and I, I can understand that, you know, for the, for most people, most of the time, the answer is like, yes. Um, you know, if you're 220 pound guy who really charges and likes to, you know, huck 20 and 30 foot cliffs, you need to probably go to the beefier end of that kind of stuff, but you'd be amazed at what, uh, you know, how well tech bindings really perform for the vast majority of people in the vast majority of situations. Cool. Cool. Well, I'm going to bring up one more gear-related subject, and we won't spend a lot of time on it, but the listeners probably know by now, since I've done a couple of shows, I've started a new company called Poddivi, and Poddivi provides advertising for podcasters. And so if you're interested in working with me to get some ad revenue, just go to poddivi.com. But I was talking to an advertiser uh, yesterday about water filtration in the backcountry, and so I wanted to bring that up. I assume that you've done overnight trips. You like to have a good water supply when you're in the back country. Um, do you primarily try to melt snow or do you find water sources that you pump? How do you take care of, of water? Kind of really depends on the situation. Um, you know, a lot of the, you know, I was an Alpine climber for, you know, a long, long time and uh, was a mountain guide for many, many years. And so I was, you know, been on numerous kind of expedition type trips and uh, the water source really depends whether or not you can find open water in the winter. Uh, depends a lot on where you are. Um, traditionally, we've relied on melting snow uh, for water supply and, and winter backcountry trips. So that means you have to have lots of fuel to do that. And it's kind of laborious. It takes a lot of fuel to melt slow or snow. Yeah, it takes a lot of fuel to melt snow, um, you know, but you're not going anywhere without water. I mean, yep. So, you know, <laughs> uh, the stoves have gotten lighter, you know, they burn pretty well now um you know fuel always it always depends on where you're at you know we can get fairly clean burning fuel in a lot of places in north america that you know might not be the case in you know parts of the developing world where you know, fuel just uh, may burn dirtier and you got to clean your stove more often um, yeah but, uh, typically relied on kind of melting snow and you just got to carry enough fuel to do it um you know the filtration stuff or you know treating water has gotten uh, easier to do over the years too. You know, you're not dealing with just typically pumping filters anymore or iodine pills, which were your options, let's say 20 or 30 years ago, but you've got things like, you know, UV pens and, you know, you've got, uh, really basic, you know, like water bottle filters that you can just fill up and, you know, press and, you know, their physical filtration. And, um, it's gotten pretty easy to filter water. So, you know, I carry small little filters around there just in my backpack. And if you find, if you find open water, you can fill things up pretty quick. Well, this advertiser I was talking to is grail and their system is where you dip a cup in the water or let it fill with an overflow. You know, it's nice because you can collect water that's just moving very, very slowly. And then the filter presses down through the cup and then there's an inner yep. catch that gets the water. And I took it backpacking um, just a couple of weekends ago. And the amazing part is how fast it is because I'm used to having to sit down and pump and pump and pump and pump and pump, you know, to try to get water. And yep. in this thing, eight seconds does, I don't know what it was, 20 something ounces. I don't know. It was quick. Yeah, I mean, like the number of options that have popped up over the last couple of decades is is pretty awesome. Things have gotten lighter, easier to pack, easier to use, you know. 
I wanted to ask you specifically about um, the problem with water filters freezing up. And so you don't want a water filter to, to, to freeze repeatedly because you can damage the filtration. But do you have any tricks for keeping a filter warm? Or is that one of the reasons why you just say I melt snow? Uh, I mean, it's typically why I melt snow. You know, if I'm, if you're, I mean, if you're out in the backcountry and, you know, below freezing temperatures for, you know, days and nights, multiple days and nights, uh, having to worry about not letting something freeze is just another, uh, just another issue. And there's really no good way to do it. If you're putting something in your backpack and traveling around and below zero temperatures, uh, you, you know, they're all, the only way to prevent something from really freezing is to, you know, put it next to your body inside your jacket. Um, mm -hmm. so you have to think about how many things you want to be wearing next to your body inside your jacket. Yeah. So let's get back to avalanche safety. Um, but I think the, the water filter thing, is one example of something you might want to consider taking into the backcountry that you would never need at a ski resort. And there are a lot of things like that. You already mentioned the probe, the, the shovel, and the beacon, right? So how do these things help you in the backcountry? What other things do you think people should consider when they go into the backcountry that they don't have to think about at the ski resort? You know, the avalanche transceiver and the shovel and the probe are rescue equipment. So this is stuff you need to carry with you that... In the event something goes wrong and someone gets caught in an avalanche, there's no ski patrol there available for you. Um, the amount of time someone has, if they're buried in the snow, to be extricated alive, you know, is, is on the order of minutes. Um, so you are your best chance. Uh, you're the you're the rescue. Uh, yeah. So if you get caught in an avalanche, you're relying on your partners to find you and dig you out um, and extricate you. And so you have to be able to do that, you know, fairly rapidly and right on scene. Um, and that's the kind of stuff you get introduced to in an avalanche course. But, you know, an avalanche transceiver, shovel and probe uh, allow you without those three things and you need all three, your chances of uh, finding a buried victim and getting them out quickly and uh, hopefully alive is, is really slim. Um, mm. you're relying on you know, kind of luck or something sticking out of the snow surface. Uh, the shovel has, you know, of course, other utilities. So, you know, you can dig emergency bivy shelters and things like snow caves out there. Um, and what you really need to be thinking about is if you're traveling in the backcountry, is like, well, what happens if uh, something breaks or someone gets injured? So, you, you know, on some of these snow bikes now or snowmobiles, you can be miles and miles away from mm, the trailhead sure so it's really easy to get 30 miles let's say you know from your vehicle if you're traveling on a snow bike or a snowmobile so what happens if uh the snowmobile breaks um or you can't get that thing started again or someone gets injured um even on skis you could be quite a ways you know to from your you know your, your trailhead if something goes wrong and so you like i always carry a first aid kit. I always have a really warm puffy coat in my backpack, regardless of how, how warm a day it is. Um, if you're stuck in the snow and not moving, you can get cold really fast. And so, yeah. you know, a really warm synthetic or down coat could, you know, save your life. I often carry a really lightweight uh, bivy sack, which can be opened up and turned into kind of a tarp. And that helps with like, an emergency shelter, for example. I generally have more food and water than I think I'm going to need. Um, I carry extra pairs of gloves because, uh, you know, you can get hot and think you can sweat, uh, particularly moving around uphill 
or just machining through, you know, difficult terrain and wet clothes don't help you. So I like to be able to have a, you know, change of uh, gloves at the very least. Um, and I think, you know, and then I always have a repair kit. Um, so depending on what I'm doing, I want some shot at kind of fixing, uh, whatever equipment I'm on, whether it's a snowmobile or skis or whatever, um, if, if for nothing else, it's just be able to limp you back to the trailhead. Um, and in my repair kit, I've got things like fire starting equipment and things like that. Oh, good. Um, and then, you know, I often carry now these, you know, satellite emergency devices. So I can always send out uh, an SOS or communicate with somebody. And those things have come a long way. Oh, in just the last, you know, five years even. Sure. Yeah. I, I heard a podcast the other day where they were talking about the different types of satellite, um, emergency satellite beacons. And, and I was surprised because it, there used to not be that many options, but now it's, it's much more affordable. They're much lighter. They're easier to use. Yeah. They're I, I just, small and they're light. And, you know, the, you know, the excuses for not using one are slowly going away. Yeah. Exactly. Um, it's just another, it's another good safety net to have, you know? Um, and, you know, when I was guiding or if I'm on a bigger expedition, well, I'll often carry a uh, small packable um, rescue sleds too, where you can kind of turn a victim's skis into a rescue sled. Or, oh, that's a good idea. Uh, things like that. And they've got, they've come a long way too. Um, and you, you know, it's, it's another thing to throw in your pack, but man, if you need it, uh, <laughs> you're glad you brought it. Absolutely. You know, I wanted to mention one thing. You talked about how the shovel is really for your buddy. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, you can use it yourself, but I remember at, at one trailhead for a winter 14er climb, a friend of mine says, oh, it doesn't look like it's that bad. I'm going to leave my shovel in the car. And I looked at him, I said, that's my shovel. That's not your shovel. <laughs> and yeah, no, I'm mean, <laughs> <laughs> said, you're not leaving a shovel in the car. Come on. I don't know. Well, that people I mean, you know, that's a that. good, that's a good segue into kind of who you travel with in the backcountry. So, you know, I have come, I really emphasize and really rely on traveling with folks who have a same risk tolerance and mental model for how the day is going to go uh, right. and what risk tolerance they're ready, ready to accept. And I travel with people that we're all on the same team. We have a shared vision and anyone who's not willing to carry, you know, an avalanche transceiver shovel and probe uh, in the backcountry avalanche terrain is just not a partner of mine. Um, right. No judgment, but we're not going to be partners. Um, if that's something you want to do, you need to do it with somebody else is the way I approach it. Yeah, and that's well said. And I, I think it's wise as well. You know, you need to be with people that, you know, uh, will be there for you because that's why you have other people with you in the first place. That's one of the reasons. It's to be with yeah, great oh, people, but it's also because it's an inherently risky sport and you might need some help. You know? Yeah. I mean, you know, people do like to go, you know, solo in the backcountry. Um, some people like, to, and you know, that that's fine. There's ways to do that while minimizing your risk, which is typically avoiding avalanche terrain. Um, there, yeah, there are people and I, you know, I'll do that. I'll go out by myself and uh, generally avoid avalanche terrain. Um, you know, there are people that like to go and travel and avalanche terrain, you know, solo as well. Um, you just have to realize if that's a choice you decide to make that you're, your margin for error is really small. If something goes wrong and you're all by yourself, um, you know, there's no one there to help you. And yeah. So, you know, the, the chances of something simple uh, turning into, you know, an epic day or worse uh, certainly increases when you're all by yourself. Yeah, no doubt about it. Um, let's talk about the Colorado Avalanche Information Center specifically. I mean, this is an amazing resource. The work that you do there is fantastic. So, Educate us. How does CAIC help people? 
Yeah, so we're, um, you know, a, a program within the Colorado Department of Natural Resources. So we're a state government agency, but what we do is provide weather and avalanche forecasting for both uh, backcountry recreation um, and for uh, the transportation corridors uh, that run through the state, you know, like state and federal highways. And so we work in conjunction with uh, the Colorado Department of Transportation uh, to reduce the threat from avalanches on roadways in Colorado as well. So we've kind of got two, two prongs of our mission there. So. Mm. so just out of curiosity, how many roadways are threatened by avalanches each winter? Yeah, so it's uh, around 20 different uh, stretches of highway that we forecast for uh, in the state of Colorado. And each one of those highway sections you know, has multiple avalanche paths that threaten those. So if, for example, if you just take like US 550, you know, between like Ure and, uh, you know, Durango, for example, that's, you know, one stretch of roadway, but it's got hundreds of individual avalanche paths. Wow. Yeah, that's a, yeah. that's a big one. Let's talk about winter before last, because yeah. that was, that was a record setter as far as I'm concerned. And that's, that's just me, but that was a big one. What about the avalanches that winter? Oh, I mean, it was something else. I mean, yeah, that was uh, an avalanche cycle, the likes of which, you know, no one really alive has seen in the state of Colorado. Um, mm. You know, it was both, you know, historic in terms of uh, the size of the avalanches that we were seeing. So, you know, these were avalanches large enough to, you know, extend existing avalanche paths, you know, both laterally and uh, in vertical drop. And in some cases, you know, uh, clear out paths that may have never run in the past. So it was not only just the size of avalanches that we saw, you know, taking out thousands of acres of mature timber, but uh, the spatial extent of it as well. So, you know, did impact most mountain ranges in Colorado. So just the size and the spatial extent of it was, you know, an historic avalanche cycle, you know, once in a career type thing. Yeah, it was huge. I driving around Colorado. Now I see where the avalanches have come through and the vast piles of timber, we're talking about trees that are 100 years old, 120 years old, maybe 150 years old, snapped up, you know, like twigs piled yeah. <laughs> in the yeah. valley. I mean, at least. And, you know, we've been sampling, uh, taking tree samples in a lot of these paths um, over the last two summers and uh, trying to get a handle on, you know, just, uh, you know, how old were some of these trees, try to get a handle on the return interval for events type, uh, you know, such as these, but, you know, we could be looking at 100 years, 300 years, or, you know, even more depending on the path. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. So in every winter has potential for avalanches, right? That was a particularly challenging one, but how would someone who wants to go into the backcountry use what the CAIC offers so that they can be safer? Yeah, so they can, um, you know, one, get, you know, mountain weather forecasts for the area that they're going in, you know, so we put out daily weather forecasts for backcountry recreationalists for um, 11,000 feet in the mountains. And so, you know, these are handcrafted avalanches that will come out um, by six in the morning each day and then by, you know, one in the afternoon uh, each day. So you can get up-to-date information on mountain weather. And then importantly, they can look at the area that they're going to be recreating in and get um, 
the avalanche danger rating for the day. And so, you know, in North America, we use a, a five-tiered uh, scale to rate the avalanche hazard. Um, each of those has um, travel recommendations for how you, you know, should approach the backcountry. And so they can get up-to-date, you know, current information um, every day, all year long, uh, uh, sorry, all operational season long. So from, you know, November through May, um, earlier and later if conditions warrant, but every day, you know, between the beginning of November and the end of May, um, they get the avalanche danger rating, what types of avalanches they're likely to encounter, you know, the likelihood of triggering an avalanche, the potential size of those things, and then ultimately some uh, terrain and travel advice so that they can, you know, plan a backcountry outing that's appropriate for the conditions. Well, that's great. So these forecasts are specific to different parts of the state and that's ang right. aspect angles and things like that. So this is pretty detailed stuff. Yeah. I mean, you know, we still have a lot of mountain ranges and a lot of mountainous terrain in Colorado. Our current construct, we've kind of carved the state up into 10 backcountry forecast zones. And so you would fall in, you know, but it does cover all of the mountains of Colorado. So anywhere you're recreating and you'll end up in one of these backcountry forecast zones, um, but they are still regional forecasts. And so, uh, we're forecasting for a region, uh, like the Front Range, for example, would be a forecast zone. Um, but then we do give specifics on the, like I said, the types of avalanches uh, that you're likely to encounter, where on the compass, you know, in terms of aspect and elevation, you're likely to encounter those things. And then, you know, what the avalanche might look like in terms of size if you do trigger one. Okay, so let me give you a scenario. Let's say that I uh, have been planning a ski weekend with a bunch of friends for weeks and maybe even months in advance and the weekend finally arrives and the avalanche danger is say the the next to highest level in the area where we were going to go and i'm like ah oh, dang it what do we do we've been planning this for months um how can i use your website and your services to figure out how to save the weekend yeah well i mean you know the scenario you just painted out here so it's a five-tiered scale you know five is is extreme avalanche conditions so that's like conditions that we had during the midst of that uh avalanche cycle last march um the step that's five out of five right below right. that is four out of five so that's high avalanche danger and under those conditions you know travel in and underneath uh, backcountry avalanche train is not recommended so it would really depend on the type of outing you're planning. Like if you're planning some kind of hut trip, for example, we do have huts in the state of Colorado where um, access and egress from those huts travels through little or no avalanche terrain uh, with very little avalanche terrain around it. And that might still be fine. That might still be appropriate. Um, but certainly during, um, you know, high avalanche conditions where avalanche warnings would likely be in place, you know, travel in and around backcountry avalanche terrain is just not recommended. So you might need to postpone that trip or make an audible and do something that doesn't you know, involve traveling an avalanche terrain. You know, it sounds like if people can plan such trips with a lot of flexibility in mind, that might be a better idea because there might be another region of the state where the avalanche dangers better. Right. And say, well, Hey, instead of going yeah. there, let's go down here and, and we'll just avoid these slopes. You know. Yeah, I mean, and that that's always a great, great way to approach it. I mean, essentially, you don't want to, uh, you know, pick an objective or pick a trip and then be married to completing your objective or going on your trip, regardless of what the conditions say. Right. So, you know, the whole key to traveling around in the backcountry safely is to make sure whatever outing you're planning is appropriate for the conditions um, as they are on the ground. 
So it's always, you know, if you, you might have a trip plan to a particular hut, but you do want to evaluate that, you know, whether that trip plan that you made is still appropriate given the conditions that are forecast for this, that particular weekend. And if not, then you either change your trip plan or, you know, and like you're suggesting, you, you change where you're going. And both of those are reasonable options. What you don't want to do is try, this is how people get into trouble is, you know, they become very married to a trip or an objective, um, despite the conditions. And so they try to, you know, uh, what, what we all do as people is try to justify or fit a pre-existing conceived notion of what you want to get done and uh, into uh, current conditions, even when those things might not match up. Probably not a good idea in the backcountry because the risk is just pretty high sometimes. Yeah, sometimes it is. I mean, a lot of times it's not. And so you want to plan, you know, those more serious consequential objectives for times when the avalanche danger is not as elevated. I mean, because in the end here, it's like, you know, avalanche conditions and the avalanche hazard is just an environmental condition. This is uh, mother nature uh, calling the shots. And so you're not going to outsmart her. Yeah. Um, so you need to play by her rules. So when the conditions are, you know, safer, you can pick, you know, bigger, bolder objectives. When the conditions are more hazardous, then you need to rein it in. So but, that's really uh, you where they this... need to play by her rules. Yeah, absolutely. That's where the CAIC can really help, I think, because, I mean, unless you're out there watching the conditions every day, you really don't know when you're traveling into an area what has happened there. We have so many microclimates all over the state. And to be able to look at your website and say, oh, this looks kind of crazy right now. I mean, that could save a, a lot of a lot of danger, a lot of lives. I don't know. I think it's a, a great service you provide. Well, no, I appreciate that. And, we, you know, I mean, our whole goal is to provide people with uh, the information they need to plan safe outings and return home. Well, Brian, let's talk about briefly the power of an avalanche for people that have never experienced one other than maybe seen it on television or something. Um, what do avalanches do? How fast do they go? What can, I mean, what are the forces involved? Why are we worried about it at all? I mean, isn't snow light and fluffy? <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, it is light and fluffy. And so, you know, what avalanches look like and what they do, you know, covers a wide spectrum, you know, so they could be anything from like small sloughs and fresh new dry powder, which would, you know, be of little to no hazard to a person unless it knocked you, you know, off a cliff or something like that, um, or, you know, took, made you fall in really consequential terrain, um, to anything, you know, on the low end of the spectrum, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, you can have giant slab avalanches bringing down, you know, tons and tons of snow and wiping out vast swaths of mature timber and destroying structures and villages and you name it. Um, and then everything in between. And so, you know, think, avalanches can move anywhere from barely creeping along if they're like really wet debris flows uh, to traveling, you know, 100 miles an hour. If 100 miles an hour. Yeah, sure. You, know, you can have avalanches, you know, reach those types of speeds and big, you know, mountain ranges with big vertical relief, um, dry snow avalanches with, you know, really impressive powder clouds that go out in front of them. Um, you know, they can get moving at, at really impressive speeds. So someone should never assume that they can ski faster than the avalanche is going to come down. Well, I would say that if your travel plan includes escaping an avalanche as part of your risk reduction strategy, that you should rethink that. Um, your <laughs> strategy should not rely on outrunning an avalanche. 
you know, I do know a lot of people have managed to usually ski out of the avalanche run out. You don't really outrun it. You ski perpendicular or diagonally until you're no longer in front of it. But people do that, but you shouldn't plan on that. I think you're right. You just shouldn't expect that you're going to be able yeah, to. Yeah, I mean, it happens. And, you know, people do ski out in, uh, of avalanches. Um, but I would... <laughs> But anyone who's done that should consider themselves quite lucky. Um, it's not a, it's not a recommended strategy for staying safe over the long run. That's good. Yeah, that's good. So let's say that you've done everything right, and by some strange fluke, an avalanche still comes down on you. What do you do? Um, as as the person caught, you mean, or yeah, yeah. Well, so if you know something goes wrong, and you you get caught in an avalanche. Um, you know, the first thing you need to do is essentially make your partners aware that this, that w- what's going on. So you need to yell, you know, avalanche, make sure that your partners are watching you. Um, at which point then you want to try and get out of the moving debris by any means necessary. So that might include, uh, gunning your machine and trying to get out of the moving avalanche debris. It might include, you know, skiing perpendicular to the moving avalanche debris and try and get off of of the moving slab or out from the debris. Um, if that fails and you get caught up in the debris and you start going for the ride, uh, you're really fighting to kind of stay on the surface. And if you can claw and swim your way out of the moving debris, um, that's always uh, better. Um, essentially, this is the time to you know use a ton of energy and try and fight to stay on top of the moving debris and get out of it if you can. Um, if that fails and you're going for the ride and you're caught up in the moving debris um, and you get buried uh, at that point it's largely out of your hands and so you know you're if you can get uh, anything above the snow surface you know like sticking a hand or a foot above the snow before the debris settles that will make you much easier to locate and find for your partners but if you get encased and buried in the snow at that point you're kind of stuck you're not able to dig yourself out and you have a limited, uh, you know, supply of air before you start to kind of uh, poison that air with your just exhaling CO2. And so you kind of want to try and stay as calm as possible, uh, which is much easier said than done. Mm. But, you know, screaming and yelling and hyperventilating um, is not helpful. So you kind of need to wait and be as calm as possible and hope that your companions know what they're doing to find you. It's not a good place to be. So, like, if this paints a really scary scenario it's because it is um you know people have been rescued from avalanches and it happens um but you really just don't want to get caught in these things in the first place if if you get caught in an avalanche something has obviously gone wrong and so people are saved from these things and rescued successfully but of course sometimes they're not you know i wanted to mention um people that don't spend a lot of time in snow may not be aware of it but when snow is moving like that it's kind of liquefied when it comes to a stop there's so much force involved that you kind of get a flash thaw and then refreeze action so snow can pack in what was fluffy coming down can pack in and be impossible to move inside of once you're stuck there yeah yeah it's not like the snow you've shoveled off your driveway into your yard so what happens is the snow's been moving you know downhill um for some distance at some rate of speed, but it's enough to generate some heat um, as that happens. And so you get essentially, you know, a little, a 
little bit of liquid water in the, in the avalanche, moving avalanche debris. And as soon as that stuff comes to a stop, you know, it essentially freezes solid. And so you're in case, so you can be buried under as little as, you know, a foot or two of snow and be unable to stand up or move that snow. You really are encased as, as if it were concrete in most situations. Um, every avalanche is different. Um, there are stories, of course, you know, where the snow is not set up quite that hard and people are able to stand up or punch out or get themselves out. But oftentimes they are very much entombed in the snow um, and really unable to move. Well, thank you for painting that picture for us. I think it people really need to know how bad it can be. And, you know, I've come to the conclusion, I do backcountry skiing, I have some AT gear and I love it, but I've come to the conclusion that I don't need to ski in avalanche terrain. Yeah. And you're not alone. Um, and I've got a lot of friends who just aren't interested in skiing avalanche terrain. They just want to go out and have some fun on low angle slopes. And that's great. Um, you know, and it's one thing to look at these avalanches that might make the movies, you know, that are huge destructive events, but like a lot of the avalanches that bury and kill people are not highlight real film. You know, it's, yeah. there's small avalanches in bad places. Yep. That happens. Definitely happens. So where can people go, Brian, to get the information that you're talking about that the CAIC offers or what about other states too? Yeah. So fortunately there's like one central stop uh, where you can look at a map interface and click on avalanche forecast for kind of wherever you're going. Um, in the United States, it would be avalanche.org. Okay. And in Canada, it's avalanche.ca. Avalanche.org and avalanche.ca. And then that yep. will punch you through to the Colorado website specifically, I guess? Um, no, that will take you to uh, the, the American Avalanche Association website, um, but there's a map interface there. And then if you clicked on any of the locations within Colorado, it will take you to the Colorado Avalanche Information Center. Um, oh, very and cool. then similarly, if you clicked on, you know... Um, you know, uh, uh, an area you're going to in Washington state, for example, would take you to the Northwest Avalanche Center, same thing in Utah, that kind of thing. All right. Well, that's fantastic. And it's a great resource, man. I am so glad that you and the team that you have there are doing what you're doing. It, it is such a valuable resource. Is there another way that people can help? Well, they can always help by, you know, supporting their local avalanche center. Um, one thing is, you know, we have, only so many forecasters in and around the field and there's only so many kind of avalanche professionals out there so every avalanche center benefits from more information um, and so if you're out in the backcountry please share what you're seeing with your local avalanche center um, they all have ways to submit observations and communicate information but the more eyes on the ground we have the better forecast that we can put out so i would really encourage people to treat this as a community effort and not only be a passive uh, receiver of avalanche information, but participate. Uh, the more we work on this together, the better forecasts that we can produce. And all avalanche centers, um, you know, love uh, donations. You know, uh, they're, none of them are flush with, you know, tons of cash. And so if you believe in your avalanche center, recreate in the backcountry, uh, you know, support your avalanche center, both with observations, but um, also with your pocketbook if you can. Well, that's awesome. Brian, thanks so much for what you do, and thank you for taking the time to come on the Adventure Sports Podcast. You know, it's almost September, and people are starting to think about what skis are going to get for the season and looking for the storms to start stacking up. I mean, it, it, we're in the midst of it already, so I think it's timely, and I really appreciate the time that you spent with us today, so thanks. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.
Oh, you bet. And everyone out there, have fun in the backcountry. That's one thing I love about the CAIC is they don't say stay out. They say stay safe, and they help you to do that. So have fun in the backcountry, but be safe first. And remember until the next show to make sure that whatever it is that you're doing, do do something. Get out there and have some fun. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.